You're listening to Confronting Christianity, a podcast of Training the Church. I would much rather hang out, like talk to my friends about things I care about than do some fake game thing in a box. Well, if Jesus Christ is Lord, how do I spend my money? If Jesus Christ is Lord, how does that shape my sex life? If Jesus Christ is Lord, how does that shape my ethic in the life of a democratic, pluralistic country and culture? How does that shape how I engage my neighbor? How does it shape how I move towards justice and mercy and all of these other things? The level at which we operate on trust every single day of our lives, when you stop to think about it, it's kind of terrifying. All right. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rebecca McLaughlin. How are you, Rebecca? I am exceedingly well. Exceedingly well. Well, that's good. Um, Hey, have you ever done an escape room? No, I took my daughter to one for her 12th birthday with her friends, but I have not done one, nor does it appeal to me even in the slightest bit. Okay, now that surprises. Why does it not appeal to you? Because I feel like I feel like escape rooms are a little bit like vape stores in that it's like <laughs> I didn't know they— appeal to me. Well, yes, you that, and that— <laughs> In that arena, you and I share the same sentiment. But I felt like I had never heard about an escape room. And then, like, the week that I heard about them, it was like all I could see were escape rooms. I felt like one day, like, Froyo was the same way. Frozen yogurt. It's like I remember the day I heard about frozen yogurt and went to a store. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, it's all right. It's not ice cream, but whatever. And then it was like I didn't even know such a thing existed. And then it was like they were everywhere. So I feel like everywhere there's an escape room. And you've never done one. Why does it not appeal to you? So here's the thing. I don't like board games and escape rooms sound to me like a 3D board game experience. I would much rather hang out, like talk to my friends about things I care about than do some fake game thing in a box. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. I just did an escape room this past week. That's why I was bringing it up. Did it make you happy? Uh, I actually, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I did it with my friend Kanan and, but here's, here's the story. You said something at the, in the last episode that made me think of this. You said, I'm not all at all aware of my environment or something Mm -hmm. like that. You said Mm -hmm. like, you're, you don't pay attention to details Mm -hmm. of like, yeah. So like I grew up in a home where when my then girlfriend, now wife, she came into my childhood home and she said, Hey, it's kind of crazy. Your bathroom is like all pink, like the bathroom that you've used your whole life. And like, that's weird. You lived here your whole life and your you and your parents never painted it, you know? And I was like, it's not pink. And she's like, it is pink. It, the whole bathroom <laughs> yeah. is pink. And I said, it's really not pink. I, I, I can't imagine that. I, I mean, I don't have a problem <laughs> with pink. I just know it's not pink. And she was like, okay, well, come in here. So I walk in with her and as sure as she could have been, it was pink, it's top pink, to bottom, yeah. mm-hmm. all the cabinets, yep. the tile, me, brother. everything was me. pink. And I yeah. said, I came and asked my father, I said, was it always pink? And he was like, absolutely. So yeah. I am not attentive. And the funny story about this escape room, Rebecca, is that, so Kanan, who's a friend of mine, he's a pastor in Fort Worth, and one of his friends, who we'll call Dr. Steve. He's um, not the promised land. No. <laughs> no, no. How does he spell not, it? It's kind of a name uh, to live up to. It is K A Y. He's flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> He's very kind. He's a great friend. Uh, so in one way, yes. Um, uh, no, it's K A Y N E N N. So that there. Oh you my go. goodness! Pretty I know. Good. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but he's also from Boston. Well, you're not from Boston. Let Indeed, the reader, I'm not. <laughs> let the listener understand. But try again. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So, but we're in the escape room. We do this escape room. 
uh, we complete the escape room. We escape from the room. And uh, the person who is like helping you give hints, because there's like a person who like gives you hints prompted on the TV the whole time. He comes in to like congratulate us and explain the room and things we missed. And while he's explaining the room, I realize I had done this room before. I had done this this exact oh <laughs> room at this exact location and it had not occurred to me. I wasn't slow playing the room. I wasn't pretending is- just for the benefit of the party I was with. I had genuinely forgotten an immersive one hour long experience in a confined space that was like an archaeology. It was very detailed. Like the theme was there. I had been to that location and done that escape room and had forgotten it entirely. That is next level inattentive. I respect that. Yeah. I mean, like it blew me away. And my wife, when I came came home and told her, she was terrified at the notion. (laughs) And I thought, so am I. Um, That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today other than the (laughs) fact that I did not know that I had done this escape room. And today we're asking the question, how do we know anything? Well, I'll tell you what it does have to do with our topic, though. Ooh, okay, great. Let's do it. You are telling me something actually quite implausible. Yes. That you did this escape room that you'd done it before, you had no idea. Because I have some sense of your character, I actually believe you. Oh. And, and one of the ways in which we access truth in every sphere of our lives, I think people sometimes sort of section off religious truth as if it's its own special thing, which in yes. some senses it is, but mostly it's actually not. In every sphere of our life, we take things to be true on the basis of somebody we have a reason to trust telling us so. That, oh, Rebecca, you are you're two episodes into your first podcast, and you're already a master of the segue. That was flaw. That was a flawless victory right there. <laughs> Why? Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right, though. We do. When, uh, one of the key ways that knowledge gets transmitted and that we operate, we certainly operate on the basis of trusted testimony. Would would we say that we operate on the basis of what others have said every day in some way, right? Every, not just every day, every hour of our lives. Okay. If so you are getting into a car, I, don't, uh-huh. I do not know how cars work. I know you put gas in and it burns yeah. and the uh-huh. wheels go round. That's yes. most of what I know about cars, not yes. to play to any gender stereotypes there. But I trust that my car is going to work and that the dial on my car that's telling me how much gas there is in my tank is telling me the truth and the mm-hmm. the, the road signs uh, look the same to me as they do, look to other people. There are so many ways in which I'm actually acting on the basis of faith when I get into a car or when I get into an Uber and I trust that some complete stranger is not an axe murderer or a rapist, but is going to drive me to the location that we've agreed that they'll drive me to. I mean, the, the level at which we operate on trust every single day of our lives, when you stop to think about it, it's kind of terrifying. Yeah, you're right. And and whether it's the chair we sit down in or the car that we turn on or the weather report on the panel in our house or our phone, we are operating routinely on the basis of information that we have to exercise some degree of trust in. And when we talk about knowledge, because we're going to be talking through all sorts of questions in the course of this podcast. I mean, like, Stuff that's very specific, stuff that's more general, stuff that is very granular, stuff that's more broad. And as we do that, lurking behind every one of those discussions is going to be this question. How do we know anything? And so Mm -hmm. when we were thinking about where to start with this podcast, we kind of need you and I to have this conversation because if you and I come into this show 
uh, and you're operating off of a a measuring stick or an acid test or some sort of instrument of knowing and I'm operating off of something entirely different, then we should expect that we're going to have a very hard time understanding one another, reaching consensus, agreement. And I think this is what plagues a lot of contemporary conversations mm-hmm. around big ideas is that uh, oftentimes the kind of operating software or engine of knowledge remains unreflected upon, unconsidered. And so we have all these kind of top surface level conversations about what should this be? What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is true? What is beautiful? What is not? And there's an engine driving those conclusions in all of us. And if we never talk about that engine, we're going to reach different destinations routinely. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think this is especially true, actually, in questions of apologetics, which is kind of our our overarching theme for this series. Because one of the things that has happened, at least some of the time, and I I don't want to paint with a a broad brush here, but what sometimes happened with Christian apologetics is that a a guy or girl, typically a guy, let's just say a guy, uh, makes a claim that actually is uh, verifiable one way or another. So maybe they're making a claim about science or maybe they're making a claim about scripture or history or something that is at least to to some significant degree um, fact-checkable. Mm-hmm. And they'll stand up and make that claim in, in the room or in, in their book to a Christian audience. And, and they know twice as much about this subject than anybody else in the room. So everybody in the room believes them. And then the people in that room or the people reading that book kind of take that piece of information and they propagate it again. And they propagate it again like it sort of goes through these, these generations of, of propagation. Yeah. And nobody actually goes and checks whether the original statement was was true, yeah. at least to the extent that... Christians who are leaders in the field that's relevant to the question would say, yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, one of the the really interesting experiences I had spending nearly a decade working with Christian professors at places like, you know, Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and MIT and stuff, you know, people who are recognized as world leaders in their field who are also very serious Christians was the gap often between what they would say and what, quote, apologists who were trying to talk about that area of study are propagating in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And and it was both sort of encouraging and discouraging. So it was encouraging to hear that, yeah, actually some of the world experts recognize both Christians and non-Christians, the world experts in this field are convinced that Jesus is Lord and this is how this question connects up to that. So that's great news. Less good news is the fact that a lot of Christians are being kind of fed half-truths or sort of wobbly, shaky, incomplete views. Yeah. So when we ask the question, how do we know anything? Um, we need to kind of ask what is a thing to be known and how do we know it? You know, um, and so not all knowledge is when we think about knowledge, we think about truth. I think immediately most people default to fact or experience. Mm-hmm. I think those are the two kind of dominant like categories, you know, whether uh, people know it or not, they usually offer operate off the basis of either a kind of emotivism, mm. which it could be broadly characterized by my feelings are a reliable indicator of that which is true, or they operate off of the basis of some kind of empiricism, which is broadly whatever I can kind of 
touch, taste, see, experience through my senses is true. I think those are two of the most operative categories, even among a category name. Mm -hmm. They're either Mm -hmm. operating on the basis of what I can kind of experience through my senses is true and reliable and I'll put my trust in it, or what I feel is good or beneficial or even successful or or working Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. is true. But when the Christian asks the question, how do we know anything, and you've already signaled this a little bit, our immediate answer is probably neither of those two categories. It's probably something else. We often, as Christians, will talk about issues of faith and trust. Oh, my goodness. We've received a f- Is this our first call-in? Is this a call-in guest? <laughs> this is my mother-in-law calling me. I don't know why. She's- <laughs> well, do, do you think she would contribute Sorry. to the conversation on how we know anything? Get her on I'm there sure she and would. say... She probably wouldn't want you right now. <laughs> That's amazing. We've never had a phone call on a Train the Church podcast, so that's a first for us. We've had a lot of text message rings, and we've had a lot of uh, hosts not being able to figure out that their mic was on, um, but never a phone call. So we've just broke new ground on this. But when, when we think about the question of how do we know anything, kind of a classic Christian formulation is faith-seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an mm-hmm. Augustine was a church father in Africa, and we often, when we think about Um, the question of knowledge in the Christian tradition will begin with this topic of faith and trust. Is that okay to talk about trust and faith? Isn't knowledge and knowing supposed to be about something that's indisputable that doesn't require faith or trust? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, even the word that we use to translate the Greek word that's typically translated as faith. Mm -hmm. But the honestly, could also be translated as, as trust in, in many mm. circumstances. And I think we relate to those two words very differently, actually. Yeah. Because if when we talk about faith, we immediately are thinking in religious terms. And a lot of people have an implicit definition of faith, which is basically faith is believing stuff you don't have evidence for. Right. <laughs> faith is a sort of act of going against the knowledge that you might acquire and grabbing onto something because it's sort of a... A, a baptized version of wishful thinking in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, faith is uh, faith in that category is kind of like the the great leap into the unknown. Yes, yes. Uh, trust is something that we recognize is truly important to our our daily lives, and that it does apply to everything from whether I trust that my car is, uh, you know, the brakes are working in my car today, or whether I trust that the person I'm inviting into my home isn't going to murder my children. Like that, that we we yeah. recognize that that trust is something that we have to operate on. Whereas Mm -hmm. faith seems like an optional, you know, you can have faith or not have faith. Either is great in a lot of people's minds. But in fact, I think we, we daily operate on the basis of trust. We, We could not function at all in our lives without that. And at the same time, we're foolish if we don't connect up our trust with knowledge that we've achieved through experience. Because if continually I get into my car and the brakes don't work, I'm kind of foolish the next time I get it. Like if I've had three wrecks because my brakes aren't working, I should have learned at that point that my my trust, my faith in my car is misplaced. So I think it's a relationship between trust or faith and knowledge that informs all of our decision-making, all of our choices as humans. And that that's actually equally true of a Christian versus an atheist or an agnostic, that we're all operating on the basis of faith and trust in relation to knowledge. And frankly, this is where um, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt's very interesting 
not not a believer in God himself, but has a lot of interesting things to say. And one of them is that when we engage in a kind of rational argument with somebody else or, or discussion of a question, he asks us to imagine a, a rider sitting on top of an elephant. And he says, you know, imagine the, the rider is your rational self and the elephant is a sort of social emotional self. Mm-hmm. And we think of ourselves primarily when we're making decisions about what to believe or how to, how to live, we think that we're mostly the rider yep. and that the person we're talking to is mostly the rider. So we kind of talk to the rational piece. In fact, we humans are, are much more steered by the elephant, by our yep. sort of social and emotional relationship with the world. And so we'll believe we'll often believe things because we want to believe it yeah rather than because we've been rationally convinced of it yes that or yes whether we want to believe it which is kind of the emotional side or whether it kind of fits within um a greater social structure of mm. acceptable belief yeah um you know this is you know um I think about like uh, Peter Berger talks about the sacred canopy, this idea that, that we, mm-hmm. we kind of in any situation we exist within a kind of a umbrella of that which is plausible in a given society, you know? So we talk about the sacred canopy as that which mm-hmm. exists as, as believable. You, as credible and that kind of can change um, depending on when and, and where you're at and it doesn't d- dictate what is true but it certainly informs what we believe could possibly be true yeah yeah it's it's fascinating even seeing how this plays out in our modern conceptions of self so I, I just finished reading a very interesting book called um, Rethinking Sex by Christian Ember who writes for the Washington Post and it's an interesting book because it's looking um, f- from a broadly non-Christian perspective. She identifies as a Catholic, but she's not kind of writing from a Christian perspective in this book. It looks at the ways in which our current sexual culture is really bad for everyone, but especially for women. And a point she makes uh, at one stage in this book is to say the teenager or college student or, or, or kind of young woman who is um, making decisions seemingly out of a high level of personal freedom right, and, and personal identity, making her, her very own decisions sort of defying all those um, historically who have told her to believe A or B and, and doing her own thing. Even that indiv- individual choice is actually being made because she's been told that we should all follow our own individual choices today. The sort of, yeah. I, I, ironically, the the strike for apparent freedom and individuality that, that many in our culture are making today is because that's what everybody's telling them that they should do. Right. So it's like this, um, this cutting against the grain that is in fact flowing exactly with the grain. Yes. And, and it's not to say, neither Rebecca or I are saying that truth is, is circumstantial that, or, or, or that right. w- what is true is circumstantial. We're just merely saying what almost everyone agrees with, which is that our circumstances certainly shape our, our social, uh, economic, global language situation or situatedness or circumstances, they, they shape what we believe to be plausible within that spectrum. Um, and you might have heard mm-hmm. uh, names like James uh, K.A. Smith, who certainly tried to argue that we are oftentimes driven more by the elephant than <laughs> the rational mind. And I, uh, I think one of the things that's important when we think about faith, I, I often use three A's to talk about faith and knowing. I talk about affirmation, 
that faith involves affirmation or assent. That's kind of the piece we almost exclusively reserve for faith when we're talking from within the Christian tradition, I feel. We talk about faith as that which is true. This is particularly Mm -hmm. among our little community of like broadly reformed evangelicals. Faith can often be only tied to affirmation and assent, believing the right things. That's a part of faith, but it's not the whole of what faith is as a way of knowing. Faith also involves um, uh, uh, affection. Uh, There is a desire component to to faith, meaning that we're not just saying we believe this is true, but we're now going to order our desires around the truthfulness of this thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not just affirmation and affection. It's also allegiance. That's the part of trust that I think is often misunderstood is that faith, and this is particularly pronounced in the New Testament as recent New Testament theologians have pointed out, I think about the book Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which is a really wonderful kind of uh, exploration of loyalty connotations in the Greek word for faith, which is the Greek Mm. word pistis, is that, you know, many New Testament scholars would say that faith um, is not only affirmation, it's not only affection, but it carries with it some very principal connotations around allegiance and loyalty mm-hmm. and surrender. And so when we think about faith or how do we know something, Christians begin with the concept of faith, but it's not faith as narrowly conceived. It's certainly more broad than we often think it to be. It's not only mm-hmm. experience, though it has a strain of experience that kind of falls within affection. It's not only surrender or trust trust, although it carries with that as well. And it's not only assent or affirmation of some core things that are true. Uh, It's all of those things together. And in that way, I think Mm. faith is actually a very robust way of thinking about how we know something. It's more multifaceted than we give it credit for. Well, and it's fascinating that piece about allegiance, because on the one hand, I think you're absolutely right that faith in Jesus is profoundly connected to an allegiance to him that comes above anything else and that that should shape us in ways more profound than any other allegiance that we have. So I think there's an important sort of positive way in which we should think about faith and allegiance. But I think there's also the the shadow side that we see and I I feel like I'm kind of still in the process of understanding this better. That sense of, well, I'm a Christian because of my allegiance to this tribe yes. that I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the the millions today, which breaks my heart, the millions who would say they are evangelical Christians, who would say they were born again Christians, who would mm. say they absolutely, you know, believe in Jesus. And in fact, they they just don't. That they they're part of a, a sort of social tribe mm-hmm. for whom saying that is uh, you know an indicator of inclusion in the tribe. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's not actually true that their, their true allegiance has very little to do with with Jesus Christ Himself. And I don't I don't mean to say that in a kind of harsh and judgmental way, sure. as if I can sit down with somebody and say, you know, I, I know that you're not really a Christian, even though you think you are. Um, but sometimes when people lament the fact that what you could call kind of cultural Christianity is is waning in in the states right now, and fewer people are identifying as Christians than than might once have done. There's a piece of me that thinks, well, I'm so glad because I would much rather people knew they were not Christians and we had the opportunity to evangelize them mm-hmm. than people thinking that they are Christians when in fact it has zero meaningful relevance to their to their lives at all. 
You know, and, and you're right. And I think when we think about, I want to come back to that line of thought that you just said in another episode, because I think I used to, I, I think I used to think exactly like that. And I don't know that I do as much anymore. And, but I want to come back to that. But I will say that when we think about allegiance as a part of faith, I want to be clear I don't mean it as a social allegiance or loyalty. I mean that we come to believe that some that some uh, some things or some claims, uh, truthfulness requires us to go all in on it. You know what I'm saying? That like we like, and this is what we see with Jesus Christ, where it's like, uh, pick up your cross and follow me. It's like, hey, the the path of following Jesus isn't just I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. It's like, no, no, no. I now must live in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. I must mm-hmm. live under the banner of that. And that's going to require more than me checking yes to the theological quiz. It means yeah. now, well, if Jesus Christ is Lord, how do I spend my money? If Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is Lord, how does that shape my sex life? If, if Jesus Christ is Lord, how does that shape my ethic in the life of a democratic, pluralistic government, uh, a country and culture? How does that shape how I engage my neighbor? How does it shape how I uh, move towards uh, justice and mercy and all of these other mm-hmm. things. And so I do think that um, you're right, though, to make a distinction because sometimes allegiance becomes a impediment to truth, yeah. not an accelerant yeah. to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we wouldn't want that. So when we think about things that claim to be true, how do you measure things that claim to be true? If I come to you with an idea, I don't know, let's say, I come to you and I say, hey, Rebecca, um, I'm quite confident that um, one of the things that's good and right in the world is that we should, let me do something silly so as to not prejudice the conversation so <laughs> so quickly. But I come to you and say, hey, I think one of the things that's good right in the world is that everyone should wear red hats. Like, I just think everyone should wear red hats. Yeah, I think yeah. that it's the best kind of hat. It helps your head all these things. Um, It's going to prevent UV radiation. Like everybody should wear red hats. Um, How do we measure things that claim to be true, both the silly and the serious? Yeah. With any question of truth, we need to make sure that we're applying the right tools. I'm not very handy, but my, I actually used used to think I was handy because in my family of origin, I am the handiest person going. In the family I've married into, I am pitifully incapable of any kind of house construction stuff. I cannot wield a tool to save my life in my Mm. family I've married into. So my husband right now is renovating a house for us to move into and he needs to make sure he has the right tools before he starts a job or else it's just not going to work. Yes. And sometimes the mistake that we make when we're considering a question of truth is, is actually bringing the wrong tools to the conversation. Many today, for example, would bring the tools of science to every conversation as if science is the only way that we can access truth. Yeah. But there are meaningful situations in which science is an important way to access truth. So if you're telling me that, that red hats are what everyone should wear and you added to your claim that they are much better at resisting ultraviolet light and preserving us from, from skin cancer, great, that's a, that's a claim that I can verify or falsify scientifically. And when I say I, that's not something that I'm personally equipped to do. It's not my training. Sure. But I could read around in the scientific literature and figure out whether it is in fact true that red hats are better than black hats. Mm-hmm. If you're saying, actually, we should all wear red hats because the people who wear red hats in this country tend to be um, happier, healthier people than those who don't wear red hats. We could also then look you know, with the tools of yep. sociology. We could examine whether that's true. So any particular truth, truth claim is going to need 
different kinds of tools brought to the analysis to see whether it's it's valid or not. Um, if you were a, a, an academic in the field of um, millinery, mm-hmm. if that's a field, yep. hat making, <laughs> um, then I would be much more liable to trust what you said because you told me mm-hmm. that you've probably done the research because you're in fact a nutty pastor from Texas telling me that everyone should wear red hats. I wouldn't take your word for it. Yeah. I hate to say this to you, Kyle, well, but no. I would not take your word for it. I would actually go and examine pretty closely whether what you were saying was true or not. And you should examine it. And I think the point you made there at the beginning about bringing the right tool to the conversation is a, is a crucial part of this. I would say that for many in living kind of in, in the modern global West, the there are the one tool that everybody feels like has equipped them to know anything at any time is are these cell phones, <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably the most the the most uh, well trafficked uh, place to ask questions is Google, and just going like, okay, I'm just going to go there, and in some ways that has created a false sense of being able to be like, well, I, I can kind of know anything quickly. And for some things that are like historical facts, you know, like dates, when somebody was born or when somebody died or, you know, uh, how to get to Franklin, Tennessee from Biloxi, the, uh, the Google can provide a lot of really meaningful answers. Um, but when we start to try to ask deeper questions, some of the tools that we're most accustomed to using we're, we're pretty quick to import those into other arenas that they either don't belong in or they're not appropriate mm-hmm. to. And science is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a checkup this week, a, a doctor checkup, uh, and it's just like a panel and like my annual exam and all those kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I, I would really like, I would love to one day have a conversation with my doctor about like beauty and Mozart, uh, and, uh, you know, classical music. I bet that would be really fun. Um, but like if in my exam, the doctor was like, you know, I really wonder, uh, are, are there any like symphonic works that you've been listening to recently? Do you think they could be affecting your, you know, your cholesterol levels? I think I'd say, well, I don't, I don't know that that's as relevant as some of the other things that we should be measuring for here <laughs> and considering like if they were like, yeah, we don't need to take your height and weight. Um, but we do need to know like what you've been listening to recently. I would mm-hmm. probably be skeptical towards that doctor, not because it's an, irre- it's an unimportant question. It's just that that line of questioning is not as relevant as some of the other things they could ask. This happens when I'm having conversations with, we, we've given some silly examples, but when we are having conversations about God, one of the most common times that you can feel this disjointedness is when somebody will bring a, a tool that is very well developed for considerations that exist in a closed natural universe. And they'll say, hey, I've got this tool here and it works really well when you're trying to determine created things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to use this tool to measure the question over a creator God. Right. And you go, well, that tool is going to be limited um, because let's imagine just for a second that this God exists and he and, and this God is independent uh, and different qualitatively, not just by degree, but by virtue of kind, um, from what this tool was designed to measure. Do you think that this tool would be an effective measurement for that kind of being? And the answer is no. 
right? right. It's and it, yeah. In fact, the tool was specifically developed to not be able to answer the question of whether there's a god, <laughs> and it was developed on the basis of the assumption that there was a creator god who made the whole universe. That's going to be a whole another episode. Um, it, yeah, yeah. And and I think when it comes to our skepticism, so you mentioned you if you went to the doctor and they were asking you questions which didn't seem to proceed out of their medical knowledge, you'd be like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. Yep. We have a really hard time bringing skepticism to bear on people who are saying what we want to hear. Yeah, We we bring our skepticism to bear on those who are saying what we don't want to hear and, and often not on, on those who are saying what we do want to hear. And, and this, I think, really hampers us when it comes to figuring out the truth or at least the truth as far as anyone can meaningfully discern in sort of politically charged questions, whether it's around science or sexuality or, or whatever. Well, what I try to do is to spend a significant amount of time listening to genuine accredited experts who have an ideological reason to disagree with me and see what they say about the data on a question. Yep. And only then to listen to experts who agree with me and see what they say. And, and if there are things on which folks on both sides of the ideological divide agree, then I can kind of take those to the bank. But if I only ever listen to experts who are motivated to believe what I believe and to find evidence for what I already want to believe in the first place, most likely I'm going to be adding my observer bias to theirs and finding myself believing things that are at least sort of 125% um, beyond the truth. Whereas if I'm, I'm truly listening to the, the sort of atheist expert in this field, and he or she is saying something and analyzing the data in a particular way, I can be like, okay, that that's that is interesting. That may be something that I can kind of bank on as being potentially verifiable. Yeah. Now, uh, let me just let's just put the cookies on the bottom shelf for the listener here. Let's let's take something that you and I both believe in, and then let's talk about why we believe that thing. Mm -hmm. So you and I both believe that the God of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, the triune God is not merely the God of an ancient story. He's not merely the God of Israel. He's not merely uh, the God of Christian scripture. He is the one true God that is bringing the whole world to its proper fulfillment and destination according to his eternal purposes and plans. We, be we believe Amen. that. Amen, we do. We believe that we do. the son of God, Jesus Christ, has revealed who God is and has accomplished salvation for those who will place their faith in him. And we believe that that salvation is necessary for forever fellowship with God. Why do you and I believe these things? And why is, and how do we know them, so to say? Mm. And why are we okay mm. with how we know them? Yeah, and, and there are so many true answers I could give to that question. One of which, which is going to sound completely bizarre, but I'm a big Tolkien fan. I know you said you're a big C.S. Lewis fan. Mm -hmm. I love C.S. Lewis as well, but Tolkien is my man. Mm. And I, I was raised on reading The Lord of the Rings. And one of the reasons that I actually believe in Jesus today is because I desire a world that is even more beautiful and magical and amazing than the world that Tolkien created in The Lord of the Rings. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that that's a kind of rational proof of the existence of God or the truth of Jesus. I'm explaining a piece of why I personally actually believe yeah. that Jesus is who he says he is. Yeah. 
that's only one piece. I'm not saying that's the, the whole of it. That's like one little piece. I could then say, well, as I've gone on in my life and learnt more and more from experts across a whole different range of fields, both Christian and non-Christian, the Christian faith has made sense for me of more different areas of knowledge than anything else. Um, to give one example, a lot of my friends who are not Christians would say that they they very seriously believe in science mm-hmm. as a, a source of objective truth and, and probably our best source of understanding of the, the world around us. They also profoundly believe in universal human equality mm-hmm. um, and the equality of men and women, love across racial difference. There, there are things that they hold to be self-evident moral truths. Mm-hmm. My Christian faith gives me um, the framework to actually bring those two beliefs about the world around me together because the God who created the world is also the God who created human beings in, in his image and who, who says that we are to relate to each other um, in equal love. My non-Christian friends are sort of piecing together a scientific understanding of the world with a, a, a sort of deeply held moral beliefs that they actually have no real grounding from that if anything cut against what we would learn from science. Um, atheist historian Yuval Noah Harari in his mm-hmm. global bestseller Sapiens says that the the scientific study of Homo sapiens has embarrassingly little to do with the notion of human equality and rights. Yeah. So again, there's just another tiny little thread of why I believe what I believe is is the way in which following Jesus enables me to piece together all the different kinds of knowledge that that I've been um, encountering in a way that's kind of coherent yep. versus disparate. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that Christianity does make the most sense out of the most questions. I think beyond yep. that, there is certainly a sense in which um, you and I would both say that we have experienced the power of God in salvation. Mm-hmm. And one of the principal ways that Christians believe that is through the revelation of God's word, that we come under uh, a belief that God has spoken in his word, the Bible, and that it is a reliable testimony to who he is and his purposes for the world. And um, I I think when I talk with people about Revelation specifically, not the book of Revelation, but Revelation is a doctrinal category, meaning Mm -hmm. that God has disclosed himself to the world, both who he is and his purposes and who we are, Um, that when I talk with people about the category of Revelation as a reliable category for knowledge, one of the immediate things that you heard back is, well, like, but like, isn't the Bible just whatever? Isn't the Bible just a collection of ancient documents? Weren't these people illiterate? Wasn't this all like a big political thing with, you know, Constantine and like all of these kinds of objections? And the reality is, is that Christians come to a, a really a, a strong confidence that the Bible is God's word. It is divine speech in action. And there is a lot of reasons why Christians believe that God's word is truthful. But there's only really one principal reason that we believe it's God's word, and that is on the basis of faith. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of areas where we can grow in our confidence regarding the truthfulness, the goodness, and the beauty of God's word. But we come to believe that it is God's word, not because we're able to check out all the ancient manuscripts or uh, you know, uh, we're able to make arguments in favor of its uh, prophetic fulfillment or any of those things, but because 
it is something that we take on the basis of faith. We trust it. As we trust so mm-hmm. many other things, we use an instrument, a tool that's kind of hardwired into who we are and how we are as humans. And God, by grace, takes that tool and aims it um, towards the revelation of his word. And I think that that is something that Christians are often bashful about. They feel a little circular in their reasoning. Well, I believe God's word because he has given me belief in his word. Um, And yet all of our ultimate commitments, um, as we've talked about already on this show, all of our kind of fundamental loyalties often are rooted in some kind of trust. The moment you use an external authority to validate the authority you currently trust in, that new external authority becomes your new highest commitment. But somewhere down the... It's not it's it's not turtles all the way down, right? I mean, it's like right. some, at some point there is something that you go, I have to trust that. Yeah, I, I would almost frame it differently to say that the reason I believe that the scriptures of the word of God is actually because of Jesus. Now, again, you could say, well, that's circular because you read about Jesus in the scriptures. Sure. It, it's sort of funny to me. Sometimes people say, well, you know, maybe um, Jesus was this guy who said some stuff, but actually the gospels are kind of made up later by people who are imagining what he was going to say. And I'm like... How many geniuses do you think were were strolling around the ancient world? I mean, the the things that Jesus said, his 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 teachings are so utterly extraordinary that if they weren't said by him, they must have been said by somebody. I mean, even like my fellow countryman Richard Dawkins, who is not a fan of Christianity, in case um, you know anyone hasn't heard of him, even he is struck by how extraordinary the teachings of Jesus are. Yeah, and I find in my own experience, even reading passages that I thought I knew really well, that things will come out of the teachings of Jesus that just like throw me back on my heels. I mean, I was uh, reading the other day that beautiful verse in John's gospel when Jesus says, um, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this than that he laid down his life for his friends. And I've, I've pondered on that verse multiple times. But I'm still even scratching the surface of what, what Jesus is talking about there. And the, the, the piece that struck me most recently is that Jesus is standing there saying, I'm giving you a commandment, mm-hmm. like I'm telling you what to do. And my commandment is that you love each other like I love you. Yep. It's like this extraordinary counterintuitive use of authority that Jesus is speaking with the full authority of God. And he's saying, I'm commanding you on the basis of my sacrificial love for you that I'm going to show at the cross. I mean, if that isn't the very word of God, I don't know what is. Mm. Do you know? What I mean? So so I'm not disagreeing with you right. that, yes, I believe in the scriptures as the word of God because God has graciously given me that belief. But anytime I feel like I'm sort of testing that belief or, or anytime that there are multiple times in my life when that belief forces itself upon me, mm-hmm. aside from my sort of broader theological commitments, I'm like, oh my goodness, yes, this has to be the word of God. Sorry, I got a little bit no. amped. No, there, I mean, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I don't think it's any surprise that when we encounter the center of scripture, like the, the, the mm. center point of revelation, the son of God, Jesus Christ revealed in his life, mm. death, resurrection, and ascension, that we once again find scripture to be compelling. And it's not surprising to me that most people 
come to faith in the reliability and authority of God's word as divine revelation by engaging with Jesus Christ specifically because he is the uh, fulfillment and telos or goal of the full witness of scripture. And so in that way, what you're saying is, I think, uh, I I think it's the other side of the coin, so to speak, of what I was saying Mm. previously, which is that Christ has, or Christ is the center of the testimony that we are putting our trust in. And so when we engage with him directly in it, um, we find that the whole of it is reliable and trustworthy in light of what we see from him specifically. Yeah. Let me just end with this. Um, If somebody asks you, your neighbor, I know that you love your neighbors and you've got friends in your community and they ask you, um, Rebecca, how do you know anything? Mm. And you just had to, you were just responding to them just right there. You're at the park, kids are playing or whatever. You're hanging out. You don't have a long time. How do you answer them? How do I know anything? How do you know anything? So many ways to go with that. I know things from my daily experience, which could be proved to be untrue, but which I'm nonetheless willing to stake my life on. And I think the example that I probably go to there would be my trust in my husband. And it's a funny thing, trusting trusting your husband, because of course there have been women throughout the ages who have trusted their husbands and found that trust to be utterly misplaced. And it is theoretically possible that despite, we're celebrating our 15th wedding anniversary in a couple of days, despite 15 plus years of knowing my husband and his character, that in fact he's living a completely double life. It's possible. But what I experience from him and what I've witnessed about him over the last 15 years has led me to certain conclusions about him that I would be willing to stake my life on. And, and in small ways and large, I, I think that applies both to our, how we answer the biggest questions of life about who God is and mm-hmm. who we are and the smallest questions of life, like should I feel safe walking down the street right now given the guy who's walking next to me? Mm. So applying the testimony of others, the experience that we ourselves have, and the track record that we can build up of believing something and finding that belief to be warranted. Mm-hmm. I would say those are the big threads that go in for me. It's good. It's a very unphilosophical response. No, 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 but I like it. And I think that it's the two sides of this is that, and something that I think is clear even in the course of our conversation is that knowledge is not, we often think about knowledge as something that is non-relational. Mm. But it knowledge is highly relational. Yeah. It involves encounter, experience, trust. And yes, um, as Christians, we believe that what is knowable is knowable because God has made it so. And he has built us as creatures who can reflect his image in knowing some things reliably. Yeah. Not knowing all not knowing all things. That that's an attribute that belongs exclusively to God. But on the foundation of our ability to know as image bearers and the knowability of the world around us by God's design, there is a highly relational component that is, that I think trust is a 
not only a, a reliable word and an accurate word, but I think it's a faithful word to the testimony of Scripture yeah. itself in terms of how we know what we know yep. and how we can move forward and exploring the things that we don't know, which is on the basis of faith and with the goal of understanding God's good world and how he's made it. Ah, okay. Well, hopefully as we move forward in some of these other questions, we'll get to keep coming back to this question of knowledge and knowing. Uh, on our next episode, we're going to be talking with Rebecca's dear friend and my new acquaintance, Rachel Gilson, on the question of why does God care who we sleep with? We just figured we'd pick a real tame third episode topic, right, Rebecca? We just figured, all right, That's let's right. go. Something very casual, something <laughs> informal, something no, people don't have any strong feelings about. Let's go with that one. And so I look forward to that episode that will be coming out next week. You can find Confronting Christianity on Instagram and Twitter. Congratulations are in order for Rebecca, who has just released another book, which is Confronting Jesus. Real quick, Rebecca, why did you write this book? What is Confronting mm. Jesus? Well, I, I wrote Confronting Christianity originally to try and address some of the really good questions that my non-believing friends and perhaps your non-believing friends have that keep them from taking Jesus seriously, taking Christianity seriously. And I wrote Confronting Jesus as sort of a follow-up. So imagine you had a friend who maybe had read Confronting Christianity or who for other reasons sort of was curious about Jesus but maybe wasn't yet ready to sit down and pick up a gospel for themselves and just read. So the, the book looks at, um, the subtitle is Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels, and it's looking at, um, you know, Jesus as a, a Jew, like a, a historical figure um, stepping into the history of, of Israel, looking at Jesus the Son, his divine identity, looking at Jesus as sacrifice, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as um, doctor, Jesus' teacher, Jesus' lover, like nine of the different angles on Jesus that we get in the Gospels. And my, my hope and desire is that it would be a book that is accessible to our non-believing friends that will help them to just take the next step of exploring who Jesus is and that also in, in meaningful ways kind of calls them to repent and believe. That sounds awesome. Rebecca, you write books like I eat chips and salsa at a Mexican restaurant, which is nonstop. So tip of the hat to you. Listen, if you're listening to the show and you want to help us out and reach a wider audience, you can leave us a review on iTunes. In your review, include a question you want us to explore in a future episode. We'll take that under consideration. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace.